now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. My name is Greg Lukianoff. I'm the president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, uh, where I defend free speech and academic freedom on campus. I'm also the co-author with Jonathan Haidt, my friend and social psychologist of a book that came out in 2018 called Coddling the American Mind. Our piece for persuasion is called The Polarization Spiral, and it's about how the right and left feed off each other to make things so much worse for politics in the U.S. The article itself is part of a afterword that originally we were going to write for Coddling the American Mind to come in the second edition. We <laughs> ended up being way too long, so we're doing it in chunks, and we hope to finish it by the end of the year in nine different chunks talking about what we've found since. Our book in 2018 was trying to really figure out what was so different about the students that started hitting campus around 2013, 2014, because it wasn't the slightest bit subtle. I'd been at that point working on campuses for about 12 years, and students had always been the best constituency for free speech. And then suddenly they started showing up, demanding new speech codes, demanding microaggression bans, demanding speakers be disinvited, all of this stuff. And it wasn't subtle. It was very sudden. It was like lightning struck. The shift was really remarkable. And we wrote an original article in The Atlantic called Coddling the American Mind. Then we wrote a book in 2018, and we tried to figure out what the causes were. And we thought political polarization was part of it. And we think that there's a kind of monomania, the idea of unhealthy obsession with one thing, both on the left and the right. On the left, Jonathan wrote a piece on his own about it, that it seems to be anything related to race and social justice, to victimhood. But on the right, it's much more about the personality of Donald Trump and about anything to own the libs, which is really not productive in its own way. So in this article, we look at data that's brand new in some cases, you know, pointing out that of the cases in which a fire established this great database of information about attempts to get, for lack of a better word, professors canceled. And you probably wouldn't be surprised that of the 471 incidents we found of attempts to get professors fired, about 164 of them were from the right. And the right runs the tables on threats of harm and death. I think about 60% of those attempts from the right involved people claiming that people were threatening their lives in email and trying to get people fired. We also talk a little bit about the Charlottesville hopes, and listeners might be surprised to find out that we get the most hate mail from the right because they say we weren't fair to Donald Trump I'm talking about what happened in Charlottesville in our book. You can read a little bit about what our response to that is. But I do think it's very short-sighted to think that this can ever be a situation in which these political sides exist in isolation. They tend to make each other worse, to make each other more extreme. And we have to figure out some way to break the cycle. Because if we keep on yelling, and we've gotten this response already to the article, well, they started it. We're never going to get anywhere. Really thankful to Persuasion for hosting our part four on the polarization spiral. Very proud of the way it came out. I hope you'll read it and enjoy. Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt's piece called The Polarization Spiral was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. My guest today truly needs no introduction. It is Noam Chomsky, the famous linguist and political commentator. We had a very broad 
conversation, we started off talking about universal grammar and its contributions to linguistics as a count of human nature. We talked quite a lot about the nature of identity and class politics and how he sees the evolution of the left over the last 50 or 60 years. And we ended the conversation talking about some of the topics about which he's written a lot, which is American power and his view of international relations, his hopes and fears for the 21st century. As you might imagine, I have some strong disagreements with Noam Chomsky, but I've tried to be true to my role as a podcast host, reining in my instinct to argue back and forth on certain questions and simply asking him questions to let his view of the world emerge. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Noam Chomsky, welcome to the podcast. Pleased to be with you. So I'm excited to ask you many questions about politics, but I want to start our conversation off by asking you about the core of your scientific work. What is the idea of a universal grammar and what does that tell us about how we should think not just of language, but of human nature? Humans have a special trait common to all humans, as far as we know, unique to the human species. There's no analog in any other animal system. Uh, that's the faculty of language. It enables an infant to very quickly, with very little evidence, to acquire the capacity that you and I are now using. Universal grammar is the study of the nature of this faculty. What is it that enables us? What is it that you and I are now using now? How did it get into our minds? What's the general basis for it? What are its properties, how it's used? Those are the topics of universal grammar. There is a traditional notion of universal grammar, which is somewhat different. It was in the past the study of regularities generally found in languages. Now the term is used differently. It's used for the theory of the built-in basis, the genetic basis for the acquisition and use of language. Somewhat different notion. And one of the implications of this theory, if I'm understanding you right, is that there is uh, a, a limit to the extent to which language varies, and that there's a limit to the extent to which human psychology may even vary. The rhetorical target of the theory of universal grammar when you invented it, as I understand it, was ideas of a blank slate in which humans learn everything from fresh and everything is decided by their cultures. So you know, how is it that if we accept universal grammar and some of the broader psychological ideas that go with it, that stands in contrast to notions that what human cultures look like is completely dependent by the local cultural context. Well, there are several issues there. For one thing, any biological trait necessarily has limits. If it has scope, it has limits. You and I are capable of walking. That capacity for walking prevents us from flying. That's just logic. If you have a system that has a certain scope, it's because it has a built-in nature, and that nature will impose limits. So scope and limits are connected. It's true of every trait. It's true of language. 
Now, there's a different issue which you raised, and that is how language affects culture. That's been studied for 70 years. There's very little evidence of any uh, linguistic effect on perception, understanding, and so on. Our culture, of course, affects the way we use language, but you could have the same language for radically different cultures. What does that mean for some contemporary political causes that seem to assume that the way we use language can have powerful political effects and that reshaping the vocabulary we use can have real liberatory potential. So, you know, in the United States, for example, there's attempts to get people to say Latinx rather than Latino or Latina, because that supposedly is not just going to be more inclusive, but actually counteract existing power structures in a powerful way. Or in Germany, there's a very widespread attempt to use gender-neutral language in everyday conversations, because the idea is that it helps to really powerfully counteract a sexism that persists in society. Do you think that those kinds of linguistic changes can actually have a powerful impact, or are you skeptical of the impact they're likely to have? That's an old story. I'm Jewish. The kind of terminology that was used for Jews in my childhood would not be used now because of the consequences, the effects that it has. So that's an old story. Yes, you know, we can argue about particular cases, but the general issue is not in doubt. You don't go around calling Jews kikes, for example, or calling Italians wops, which was done 60 or 70 years ago. But it seems to me that the way in which some of these political conversations go has a broader ambition, right? The idea is not just we shouldn't go around using terrible slur words for each other or using language that is derogatory in a straightforward way. It's that, for example, in the German, when you use the word student, which is a generic male form, which is understood to mean male and female students, but grammatically comes from the male form, it deepens the sexist assumption that men are somehow better cut out to do academic work. And so instead, we should adopt a term like Studierende, which is, you know, a gerund of saying those who are studying, because it is grammatically neutral and therefore counteracts those sexist stereotypes. And I think the hope here is not just, but obviously we shouldn't go around calling each other terrible names, but that those kinds of linguistic transformations will have an actual political impact on the structure of society. Do you think that's realistic? I'm afraid I don't see the difference. You go back to my childhood, Fortune magazine, leading business magazine, had a headline praising <coughs> Mussolini. And the headline read something like, the WAPs are unwapping themselves, meaning the Italians are finally figuring out how to do things, okay? We wouldn't say that now. At least I hope we wouldn't. When the uh, State Department was organizing radical interference in Italian elections in 1948, you look back at the eternal documents, they were saying we have to intervene radically by cutting back food, ensuring starvation, making sure people vote the right way. And it has to be so clear that even the dumbest WAP can understand. 
Okay, we don't talk like that now, at least I hope not. And what you're describing is another facet of that. One can argue that it goes too far, it's done wrong, it's done so on and so forth. But the general point is quite clear. One interesting change that has happened over the left over the course of your lifetime and perhaps over the course of my lifetime is a shift in stance towards universalism. It used to be that the left was proudly universalist, workers of the world unite, that the left had the idea that we should overcome and transcend differences of ethnicity, of religion. Today, it seems to me, and you may disagree, that a much bigger part of the left wants to organize around identity groups and perhaps even envisages a future for society in which those identity groups play as big a role as they do today, except with historically oppressed identity groups treated much better than they are today. What you're talking about is not really the left. It's what's called identity politics. The greatest, most powerful form of identity politics is white supremacy. That outweighs all the others combined. But that was always just taken to be natural, so you didn't bother talking about it. Or male supremacy. Male supremacy, white supremacy, these are deeply built into the culture. Enormous factors have enormous consequences, but they were just taken for granted. Well, what's happened now is that other groups are pressing for their own rights and identity. Maybe doing it wrongly, maybe doing it in the right way, but basically joining in the game. So in other words, it's not just white and male supremacy taken for granted, but rather concern for women's rights, for minority rights, for transgender rights, other things. So these are groups that are saying, we don't want just the overwhelming dominance so overwhelming that no one even comments on it, of the white supremacy and male supremacy that's been built into the culture for centuries. We want to expand that. You can ask whether they're doing it in the right way. Sometimes not. But it's not the left. It's just a search for rights over a broader range than just the dominant sectors. What do you mean by the idea that it's not the left? Because I think a lot of people would object to that. They would say, no, we are the left. And the right way to be on the left is precisely to counter white supremacism and those forms of white identity politics with a range of different forms of identity politics that can stand up to that. And that is what the left today is and should be. What do you mean by saying that's not the left? Do you mean that that's not being truly left-wing? Or do you mean that it doesn't dominate the left? What's the implication of that? People can call themselves whatever they want, but the traditional left was concerned with class issues. It's true that many people who have progressive ideas on political issues and so on also are concerned with women's rights, minority rights, and so on. But that particular issue of identity politics is basically dissociated from the left. The obvious reason is to look at the major forms of identity politics. And the major forms, again, overwhelmingly, are white supremacy and male supremacy. That's real powerful identity politics. We don't notice it because we just take it for granted. But that's not an argument. In fact, it shows a deep problem. 
But what about the forms of identity politics that aren't on the right in that way? So, you know, if we say that obviously politics that is about white supremacy and so on is not of the left, that's clear. But you seem to say that there is a different version that you still call identity politics that is about the rights of historically oppressed groups. Would you say that that is not, in fact, a form of left-wing politics? White supremacy and male supremacy have extraordinary impact on politics in our life. They're dominant parts of it, have been for centuries. So when other groups, other than the dominant groups, begin to say we have rights too, of course it'll have an effect on politics. I mean, look, there was a time when it was taken for granted across the country, everyone, Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson, that blacks are simply inferior. It's built into their nature. There's nothing we can do about it. You know, we'd like to be nice to them, but they're just not capable of entering modern society. That was just taken for granted. Thomas Jefferson believed it. Abraham Lincoln believed it. Some of the most progressive people you can think of believe it. Well, that's a form of radical identity politics, which fortunately many, not all of us, have escaped from. And the same is true of prevailing white supremacy, patriarchy, male supremacy, and so on. These are cultural pathologies that should be overcome. Whether they're being overcome in the right way or the wrong way, you can ask. That's a serious question. So should we say Latinx? Okay, that's up to the group in question to decide, in my opinion, just as it's up to Italians to decide whether they like being called WAPs. Let me ask you a question. What do you think is the right way, from a left perspective, to stand up against forms of white supremacy or other forms of right-wing ideologies? The right way to overcome white supremacy, it's the way that was used to overcome the belief that blacks are genetically incapable of being anything but cotton pickers and servants. Takes education, organization, activism. It's a long battle. Same is true of white supremacy. And it's being undertaken. But if you say that identity politics is not generally a form of left politics, what is the left response and what is the class-based response to oppression along those identitarian lines? Because I'm somewhat sympathetic to the idea that if you are oppressed along the lines of identity, then the answer to that might be to organize around the lines of identity. I have disagreements about with some of these movements about what the end goal of that kind of society would be. But I guess I want to understand where you see the role of class in overcoming those injustices, as opposed to the role of group-based activism. Plenty of things. Take the struggle for women's rights, which has gone on for centuries, but sharply increased in the 1960s and 1970s, part of the general civilizing effect of the activism of the 1960s, which significantly changed the country in many ways. One of the most important parts was essentially igniting a much more sophisticated, advanced, broader women's rights movement which changed things enormously. I mean, remember, in this country, until 
the mid-1970s, women were not even legally regarded as total persons. The country was founded on British common law. Under British common law, women were property, the property of the father handed over to the husband. Go back to the Constitutional Convention, one of the arguments against allowing women to vote was that it would be unfair to unmarried men because a married man would have two votes, himself and his property. Well, that actually was built into American law until 1975. 1975, it's not that long ago, Supreme Court finally ruled that women are peers. They have a legal right to serve in federal juries. That's a battle. And that's only one aspect of it. There are many other aspects. The change in recognition of women's rights has been enormous since the 60s. Nowhere near enough, but enormous progress. And the same is true in other areas too. Now, if you look closely, you can find cases where it has a negative impact pursued in ways which are harmful, undoubtedly. So overcome those and pursue the ways that work and that are proper and that bring the whole society to a higher cultural level. It's a big battle. Take, say, the struggle now over what's called critical race theory. It's not over critical race theory because nobody even knows what that is. But there's a slogan, critical race theory, which according to the right wing is supposed to be bad. So you have states imposing laws, forcing teachers not to bring up this monstrous thing, whatever it is. Well, okay, that's white identity politics in one of its more vulgar aspects. So you have to struggle against it. Go to school boards, try to get them to think it through, and so on. That's the way societies become more civilized. I worry that there is a more fundamental disagreement about the kind of society that we want to live in that it speaks to. Undoubtedly, there is a faction of white supremacy. There's a faction of people who don't want slavery taught. There's a faction of people who don't want to admit the historical injustices that the United States has perpetrated. But I think there's two other factions. And one of those wants to talk about slavery, wants to talk about the historical injustices of the United States, but also wants to emphasize that the kind of society that we should seek to build would be one which we've overcome many of those injustices in such a way that people's lives is less determined by the identity group of which they are part. One in which people can choose, of course, to have deep religious affiliations or to give importance to their ancestral cultures, but in which the defining thing when I look at you is not which group you're from, because it doesn't determine your rights and opportunities in society to the same extent. And when I do think that there is quite a powerful movement that says that that's unrealistic, that we will never get there, and that actually we need to build a society that is built fundamentally around group identity, in which your rights and responsibilities as a citizen depend on the group you are part of. And so when I look, for example, at some of the elite private schools in the United States, there are now many that separate children out at the age of nine or 10 on the basis of their skin color. This is not children self-selecting into particular groups. It is teachers saying, hey, you're black, you're going to go into that group. You're Latino, you're going to go into that group. And then trying to 
reinforce the ethnic identities that these kids have at that age as a form of political consciousness raising. And I suppose I wonder what you think about that, whether you share my concern that here there is a fundamental disagreement within, broadly speaking, the left about the kind of society we want to build. Yes, there certainly are fundamental disagreements. So a very large part of the society wants to maintain white supremacy to prevent what's called the great replacement beliefs that uh, the evil Democrats are fostering migration so as to undermine and destroy the white race. There are people who want a Christian, evangelical, white, male-run society. There are a very large part of the population. That's where you're getting these ideas about, say, the great replacement and other fantasies. So yes, that's a very substantial part of the population. There was once, if you go back far enough, a very substantial population reaching all the way to educated elites that felt that it was fine to say the WAPs are unwapping themselves. There was a time when you could say, yeah, the Jews are all Shylocks and aren't really white, not totally white. There was a time when you could say that all blacks are, they didn't use the word genetically in those days, but by their nature are designed so that they have to be servants and cotton pickers and so on. They just can't live in this society. There were such views. We've come a long way in some respects, not in others. So there certainly are different visions of what kind of world we want to live in. There are different visions of what the facts are like. So are Jews white? Not for long ago they weren't. Whiteness was a concept that was created. Jews weren't quite white. Go back to Benjamin Franklin, the most enlightened figure in American society in the 19th century, the beacon of enlightenment. He thought that we should exclude Germans and Swedes from the country because they're too swarthy. Well, that was the most enlightened belief in the 18th century. We don't believe that today, I hope, but there are residues that are similar. And you see it, for example, in the concerns about the so-called great replacement or critical race theory, whatever that is. So yes, they're there, and they do turn on what kind of society we want to live in. There are divisions about that, as there always have been. You had a famous debate with Michel Foucault. I wonder how you feel about that debate a few decades later. It seems to me that you won the argument intellectually, but that he won the argument in terms of political influence, that actually his side of the debate has proven to be much more powerful on university campuses, but also more broadly in determining the shape of the sort of activist left today. Do you share that impression, and how do you feel about that debate in retrospect? Well, the main memory I have, what struck me most of that debate was that I had never seen such an amoral, not immoral, amoral person in my life. There were no questions of right or wrong, just a question, who has power? At that time in his history, he regarded himself as on the left. So if you listen to the debate, he said, look, what's important is to support the proletariat. And I said, even if they're doing something wrong, he said, well, that question doesn't arise. Just a question of who has power. That's a kind of amoral 
position that I had never really come across to such an extent before. That's my main recollection of it. Plus, of course, disagreements on things like what actually happened during the Enlightenment and so on, factual disagreements. So today, there's also a lot of attention to questions of who has power. And in many ways, that's understandable. You want to understand where oppression may be happening in society. But what is the moral and the principled way of standing up for those who are powerless without becoming immoral in that way, without starting to say, uh, as long as you're on the side of the weak, you can do no wrong? Plenty of ways of doing it. Civil rights movement did it very effectively. Anti-war movement did it effectively. Women's movement has done it quite effectively. There's no shortage of ways to stand up in support of those who are oppressed, who are attacked, who are subject to improper force and control. Let's take a real case. By the early 1970s, a lot of young people were getting so outraged by the horrendous atrocities in Vietnam that they decided that the only way to deal with it is go down Main Street and break windows. Well, the Vietnamese were horrified by this. They tried to prevent it. They didn't care about whether people felt good here. They wanted to survive. And they knew that this only builds up support for the war that's destroying them. And plenty of arguments about this at the time, which I can remember very well. But uh, yes, it's possible to pursue a just cause in ways which are, first of all, wrong in principle, and secondly, harmful to that cause. It's possible to do that. Plenty of examples in history, all the way back. So what are the principles that should guide those who are standing up for the weak or who see themselves as standing up for the weak so that they don't fall into those pitfalls, so that they don't make those mistakes? What are the guiding principles that they should adopt to avoid those mistakes? There's no algorithm for those things. You have to think it through, reflect, challenge your own beliefs, question them, try the best you can to see what are the decent principles that should guide life and then apply them. You'll make mistakes, can't help it, but that's the only thing we can do. And there aren't any, there's no catechism, you can't spell it out. Depends on circumstances, conditions, evaluation of complex human conditions. That's life, just as there's no specific rules for how to raise children. Depends on the child, depends on the conditions, depends on what the environment is. You have to make judgments. There are some general guidelines, but most of the work is in sympathetic understanding. And the same is true of other human relations. You're not going to be able to find simple instructions. It seems to me that one of the major fault lines today is how to deal with the fact that a lot of neutral principles have historically been applied in an unfair manner. So when you think of some of the guarantees of the U.S. Constitution or some principles like due process, a fair criticism of them is that actually historically they have been enjoyed much more by some dominant groups than by others. And I think a lot of the debate in politics today among those who are broadly well-intentioned, is 
between those who want to say, look, these principles have always been fake. They've always been hypocritical. We've never lived up to them. Let's give up on those principles and simplify it for the power of a week. And there's another stance which says, no, those principles are very valuable and we need to live up to them more fully. We need to create a society in which all citizens, all members, have a protection of those principles to an equal degree. How do you feel about this question? How should we think about the role of neutral principles that historically um, haven't been neutrally applied? There are two questions here. One is, should we understand our own society? Do we want to understand it? Do we want to understand where our wealth comes from? Do we want to understand how much of our wealth came from the most hideous system of slavery in human history? Remember, cotton was the oil of the 19th century. Uh, Cheap cotton was the basis for manufacturing, finance, retail, commerce in the United States, in England, enormous basis for the wealth of these societies. And cheap cotton came from hideous, vicious slavery of a kind that had never existed in human history. So one question is, should we know that? Or should we just say, oh, well, I don't care about that. I'm just not interested. That's up to each of us to decide. A second question is, what do we do about the hideous legacy that it's left? It isn't gone. It's left a legacy. Take a look at the wealth of blacks and whites. Take a look at the conditions in which they live. Take a look at the educational levels. All of that is the legacy of a hideous system of oppression. You can't just say, okay, let's start off and use the principles properly. How about the legacy it's left? So there are two questions. One, do we want to know anything about ourselves? Second, do we want to deal with the hideous legacy that is left by the system that created our wealth? It's kind of like in Germany. Suppose Germans said, let's forget about all this Holocaust business. Who cares about that? It's over. From now on, we're just treating Jews nicely. We won't worry about anti-Semitism. Because now we know the principles, and we're just going to pursue them properly, and we can stop worrying ourselves about Auschwitz and all this nonsense. I don't approve of that. I don't think others do. I don't think we should approve of it for ourselves. Well, I'm certainly agreed that we should be very upfront about the history of our countries. I'm a Jew who was raised in Germany, and I appreciate Germany's attention to the dark aspect of its own past. And I think it's good that America is going through a historical reckoning with its own different past as well. I think what I was speaking to is some of the ways in which people, for example, want to reject an idea like freedom of speech right? Where they say, look, free speech has always been unequally applied. There's always been some people who had all the opportunity to speak and others who haven't. And so rather than saying, let's build a culture of free speech in which everybody can participate in the discourse as equals, they say, no, free speech is actually a reactionary ideal that's only embraced by people 
who want to keep the status quo. And so who cares about that abstract ideal? I know that on free speech, I think you're a defender of that principle. So that's why I'd like to understand why you think that we should sometimes defend those principles, which doesn't mean we should ignore history, but preserve those kinds of neutral principles. Well, two comments. For one thing, I, of course, agree. In fact, I've been on the forefront of taking exactly that position for years. But there's another point to look at. It's kind of interesting that this question is arising now. Suppression of speech, cancel culture, is endemic in our society. It's been going on as far back as I can remember, in the academic world, in the publishing world, everywhere. I could give you a long list from my own experience, which is by not the worst by any means. My office at work gets vandalized because of my opinions. The campus post office has to have special observation of packages that come to me because of death threats about my opinions. Of meetings I talk in are broken up by students. I have to have police protection on campus if I'm talking about certain topics. Books of mine have not only been canceled, but entire publishing companies have been put out of business because they dared to publish a book of mine. And go on and on. That's cancel culture with a vengeance. No, it's not just me, of course. It's much worse for many others. Since that was targeting people on the left and dissidents, nobody noticed it. So yes, I'm very glad that finally some people are beginning to notice it when it's their ox that scored. They didn't care about it when it was happening massively to the usual targets. It's very much like suddenly being worried about identity politics among Latinos when you've had white supremacy identity politics all over the place. Yes, it's good to be concerned about it. Let's ask ourselves why we were never concerned about it when it's going on massively, constantly, but against people who were regarded as what George Orwell called unpeople. You don't care about them, like the left, like dissidents, like people who take unpopular opinions against mainstream ideology and so on. So yes, it's a good idea. It's good that it's being looked at. And yes, let's accept the principle that you mentioned. We should allow, if there's somebody whose views you don't like, you don't kick them off campus, you don't break up their meetings, You don't vandalize their offices. You don't send them death threats. You let them come to campus and speak. Yes, I agree with that. I've agreed with it all my life, and it's been a lonely life for that reason. I obviously want to talk a little bit about the state of the world and foreign policy as well. You take a very bleak view of the nature of the United States and of American power in the world. I assume you also take a relatively bleak view of the state of Russia and China today. What do you think the prospects for free societies are in the 21st century? What do you think the world will look like in 50 or 100 years? What gives you hope and what makes you fearful? Well, there's very little that you and I can do about harsh repression in China or about Putin's corruption and repression in Russia. We can deplore it and we can say it's a bad thing. We can't do much about it. We can do a great deal about our own society. Our own society is in a state of 
serious collapse, not just my opinion. You can read the most sober commentators, most respected in the world. Take the London Financial Times, the world's leading business journal. Its major columnist, Martin Wolf, a highly regarded, sober columnist, economist, not given to exaggeration, has just written columns expressing his deep concern about how the United States is moving to harsh autocracy and its democratic system is collapsing. Well, it's not just my opinion. It's a fact widely recognized and we can do a lot about it. So let's worry about that. As far as foreign policy is concerned, there are some things that have to be borne in mind. With regard to China, a rising power, we should be asking ourselves, what is this China threat that we're mobilizing to combat? Exactly what is it? Well, take a look. It's not so easy to identify. The former prime minister of Australia, who's right in the claws of the dragon, distinguished international statesman, recently had an article about that in the Australian press, which he said, what is the China threat? And his answer was, its existence, China's existence. That's the threat. What we call the China threat is on the borders of China. It's not in the Caribbean. It's not on the borders of California. We say China is doing things on its borders, like in Hong Kong, that we don't like and we shouldn't like. Is that a China threat? China has one military base in Djibouti. The United States has 800 military bases, many of them off the coast of China, hosting nuclear-armed missiles aimed at China. We have just decided to send nuclear submarines to Australia. They won't even be operative for probably 15 or 20 years. Their one effect is to impel China to sharply increase its military force in order to counter this new major threat to them. What we should bear in mind is two things. One, ask ourselves just what is the China threat. Second, we should recognize that either China and the United States will cooperate in the coming years or else we're all doomed. It's as simple as that. The crisis that we face are borderless. Nuclear war, global warming, pandemics have to be dealt with at an international level. Well, there are two major powers. One huge power, that's the United States. One lesser but rising power, that's China. The two have to cooperate or else we are simply doomed. Can we move towards cooperation or must we move towards provocation like the nuclear submarine deal? Well, I think we should move against provocation, towards cooperation, and towards a sober, honest reckoning of what the so-called China threat is. And I think we'll find that Paul Keating, who I quoted, was pretty accurate. What's the China threat? It's there, and it's not following U.S. orders, and it can't be intimidated, and that's a threat. But we shouldn't permit ourselves to be that kind of society.
It's not new. Why have we been torturing Cuba for 60 years? I mean, is there a threat from Cuba? Why have we run major terrorist campaigns in Cuba? Major terrorist campaigns. Why an embargo that is opposed by the entire world? You look at the latest vote in the UN, 184 to 2, the United States and Israel. Israel, client state, has to vote with the United States. So effectively unanimous. Why are we doing it? Is there a Cuba threat? Yeah, and it's one of the good things about the United States is it's a very free and open society. So we have unusual access to internal documents and we can understand the reasons for policy if we choose. So we can go back to the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, Kennedy in particular, when the terrorist war was launched, almost brought the world to destruction at the missile crisis. We can go back and see what they were saying. What they're saying is the problem of Castro's Cuba is its successful defiance of U.S. policies going back to the Monroe Doctrine. Monroe Doctrine established, at least in words, not in deeds, the right of the United States to dominate the hemisphere. And Cuba is carrying out successful defiance of that. So therefore, we have to torture the Cuban people, destroy their economy, carry out terrorism, disdain the opinion of the entire world, and in fact, because of U.S. power, even force the world, force the world to observe our embargo. Europe doesn't like it. Asia doesn't like it. But we force them to observe it or else we throw them out of the international financial system. Is that the kind of country we want to be? Well, ask yourself about the threat of China. To get back to China, where would the limits of cooperation lie? And when might we start to think of China as a threat? Would you think that China would be a threat if the mainland invaded the island of Taiwan? And what kind of limits would you put in cooperation given what is going on internally in China? Is there anything that the Chinese regime could do internally, either in terms of quashing opposition or in terms of its treatment of ethnic minorities, at which point you would think that we should not cooperate with China in a substantive way? Yeah. If China began to emulate our behavior, if it began to treat Taiwan, say, the way we treat Cuba, then we would have to worry about it. But they're not. Okay, It's we who are doing that all over the world. It's we who are torturing Cuba. It's we who are creating the worst humanitarian crisis in the world in Yemen by providing arms and intelligence to our Saudi ally. It's we who are imprisoning two million people, half of them children, in Gaza in conditions in which their children are being poisoned because they have no drinkable water. That's what we are doing. And I can go around the world giving more examples. So if China ever begins to emulate our behavior around the world, that would indeed be a threat. How do you feel about what China is doing in Xinjiang? It's terrible. It's highly repressive. I don't know if it's as bad as what we're doing in Gaza, probably not, but it's certainly bad. 
There are a million people who have gone through re-education camps. There's ample evidence that there were serious human rights abuses. We can ask ourselves, just to take one of the many crimes we're committing in the world, how this compares with what we are doing to not one million people, but two million people in the prison in Gaza, where children are being poisoned because there is no potable water, thanks to the fact that our weapons and diplomatic support have destroyed the sewage systems, the power systems, regularly go in to massacre people. And that happens to differ from Xinjiang in a crucial way. We can't do much about what China's doing there. We can do a lot, everything, about what we are doing. We are doing. So let's look at that. How would you respond to critics who worry that just to focus on what we can do in our own country and just to focus on the ill effects of American power uh, systematically has led you over the course of your career to underplay the suffering imposed by enemies of the United States, whether it was by Pol Pot in Cambodia in the 1970s, or arguably in your comparison now between what's going on in Xinjiang and what's going on in Gaza. Do you think there's a concern? It's a very revealing question, very common. The fact of the matter is that we're committing vast atrocities all over the place, and the only thing we discuss is the crimes of others. And the question is, well, why should we not discuss the crimes of others? It's just inverting the world totally. Sure, we should be concerned with the crimes of others, but to a much lesser extent than our own crimes because of a simple moral principle. What matters is what you can affect. There's no point condemning the crimes of Attila the Hun. Can't do anything about it. There's a lot of point concern with our own crimes. And what we're doing, notice, is not only rejecting the moral principle, but doing the exact opposite. Just compare the amount of concern over Xinjiang with the amount of concern over, say, Gaza. It's like 100% about things that others are doing and we can't do anything about, and nothing about what we can do everything about. So the question is common, but totally misplaced, totally. Yes, we should be concerned about the crimes of others, but not totally concerned to the extent that we pay no attention to our own crimes. Rather, we should follow the proper moral principle of being concerned mostly about what we can affect. I'd be interested in seeing an analysis of the coverage on the one side of Israel and Gaza and on the other side of Xinjiang and Western media over the last 10 or so years. I'm not sure that I share your prior that there's so much more focus on Xinjiang than the former. Very easy. The concern about our poisoning a million children in Gaza is zero. Okay. Do a search of the New York Times, Washington Post, so on. See how much they have discussed the fact that we are poisoning a million children in Gaza, and compare that with what they're saying about Chinese repression. It's not hard to do, and you know what you'll find. 
I'd like to close with a very different question, which is that I have at least three friends who have stories of sending you emails when they were undergrads and when they were otherwise just ordinary people, high school students, and all of them were very surprised to receive a gracious response from you. And some of them kept up a conversation with you over the course of many years. As somebody who's terrible at responding to emails and to missives, how do you find the time to engage with so many people? And why do you think that's important enough to take up your valuable time? Because this is something that I found very inspiring and I'd love to hear your reflections on it. Just a matter of taking people seriously. I mean, I get a deluge of mail. Some of it is just junk, but a lot of it is perfectly serious people, people whose positions who radically disagree with me, but are worth taking seriously. If they're serious, if they want to have a serious discussion, not just scream, fine. Then I think they deserve respect and attention. It takes a huge amount of time. Noam Chomsky, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.